This morning, I'm going to be continuing our sermon series in the letter to the Colossians. And it's a series that we've called Jesus Changes Everything, full stop. But but what does it mean in the midst of suffering? What does it mean in the midst of stories like we've just heard from Gus and Janie? How do we make sense of the great deal of suffering that I know a number of you are going through? I guess I get the privilege of getting to know what life's really like for, for many of you. Lots of really good things happening. Lots of really hard things, really tough things happening in your lives. Misunderstandings at work, chronic illness, terminal illness, dying loved ones, disappointments, difficulties at home, concerns for your kids, financial uncertainties, stress, depression. You wonder, should it really be like this? Is this level of suffering to be expected? How come circumstances don't always change despite my prayers? If I drummed up enough faith, would it all be different? Do I need to do a little bit of internal exertion to make the difference? No, that's not it. So what, what does Jesus changes everything mean in the midst of suffering? That's what we're going to begin to explore a little bit this morning. Just begin. Uh, I'm not going to give an apologetic for suffering. I'm not going to try and explain the reason for suffering in general or the reason for your suffering in particular. I'd much rather cry with you and hurt with you and pray with you than try and analyze you in the midst of your story, whatever it might be. It won't bless you much if I did try and do that. What I want to do instead is ask, how does Jesus change everything full stop in the midst of suffering, even when circumstances don't change? And so I pray that by his grace, we'll see him more clearly and treasure him more dearly and find hope in him that is very sure, even as we do that this morning. Okay. So we're going to look at Colossians. We're in chapter 1 from verse 24 to 29. I'm going to read it. It'll come up on the screen. This is my daughter's little sketch there, which is a helpful little bookmark. Don't tell her I used it for a bookmark. Um, Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Okay, what I'm going to do is make two broad points this morning. Firstly, that the gospel advances through suffering. It always has. And secondly, that the gospel sustains us when suffering. It always will. So firstly, the gospel advances through suffering. Paul begins by saying in verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. How can he say that? How can he rejoice in suffering? Is he just getting carried away? No, he means it. 
In Romans 5 verse 3, he says, we rejoice in our sufferings. How can he say that? Well, I think there are a few reasons why Paul can say that. Firstly, it's clear that for Paul, suffering is not an unexpected intruder in the Christian life. Clearly for him, suffering was not an aberration. The appearance of suffering never seemed to make him question the faithfulness of God or protest that this is some kind of small print that I didn't know about when following Jesus. In fact, quite the opposite. His assumption was not that being part of the people of God means no suffering. His assumption was being part of the people of God guarantees suffering. Why? Well, because as an outstanding Jewish scholar, Paul understood that journeying with God in this fallen world has always involved going through suffering to glory. And he understands that that is precisely the road along which we get to know God and trust God and treasure God and have him ever present with us. So if you think about the story of Abraham or of Jacob or of Joseph or of Moses or Gideon or Daniel or David or Ruth or Esther, Jeremiah, Job, some of you will know their stories. Each of their stories was marked by suffering. Journeys through doubt and disappointment and pain and sorrow and loss. And yet it was precisely on those journeys that they got to know God, learned to trust God, came to see him and to receive from him grace upon grace, loving kindness and promises. And more than that, through their stories, others came to see and experience God too. It's always been that way. Take Israel, for example. After being freed from slavery in Egypt, they did not walk straight into the promised land flowing with milk and honey. They did not go from slavery straight to a constant experience of abundance and ease. They went to a desert. They experienced the hardness and the uncertainty of desert, yet it was in the desert that the Lord led them, a pillar of smoke by day, a pillar of fire by night. It was in the desert that the Lord provided for their needs. He gave them manna each morning, miracle bread, just enough for each day. He gave them each day their daily bread in the desert. He provided water out of dry rock to meet their thirst, and it was in the desert that he gave them sweet and sure promises of his faithfulness and commitment to them, even though they time and again were not faithful to him. God was with them in the desert. That's the pattern that Paul had seen throughout scripture. Was, it was the pattern of the people of God through suffering to glory. And of course, that was the journey that Jesus himself walked. Jesus is the true Israel the promised Messiah through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. Jesus is our representative, fully man, born of a virgin, the second Adam. And yet Jesus is Emmanuel, fully God with us. And this God-man was himself, according to Isaiah, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. He would himself suffer many things before entering his glory. So Paul's understanding of Jewish history accommodates the reality of suffering. And Jesus tells us to have similar expectations. He says in John 16 verse 33, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, 
for I have overcome the world. Trouble in this world is guaranteed. We follow Jesus into trouble, including the suffering common to living in the world. And yet joy is possible even within that trouble because Jesus has overcome the world. Now, we're going to come back to this later, but I can't resist the little detour here. So Jesus is the eternal Son of God, and he entered into our world of suffering at Bethlehem. And then in Nazareth, he experienced life in the world as we experience it. And then at Calvary on the cross, Jesus overcame the world as he died with all its curse and sin and sickness and pain and death. You see, in Genesis 3, the curse of sin and death is represented by thorns springing up from the ground. Mankind pulls away from God and thorns spring up. As Glenn Scrivener puts it, God is light and life and love. And so if you pull away from him, all you find is darkness and death and disconnection. Thorns, curse. But on Good Friday at Calvary, Jesus took our curse upon himself as a crown of thorns was placed on him on his head. So when he went to the cross to suffer and to die, as he did so, it was condemning the world of suffering and sin and death and disconnection in him as he suffered on our behalf, in our place, our curse placed on him, so that having taken our curse, he might give us his blessing. New birth, new life. So just as surely as we do follow him now into trouble, so too we shall follow him into glorious life, through death and out the other side. Even now, his life is at work in those who trust him. As Romans 8.37 puts it, Adrian's already read it, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, even though we experience trouble and distress and persecution and nakedness and danger and sword. We do experience that, but it cannot separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So our hope is not in the world. In the world, we have trouble. Our hope is not in the preservation forevermore of this current experience of life. It's fading away. It's being condemned on the cross. No, our hope is in Jesus, who has overcome the world and gives us new life and a glorious future. More on that in a minute. In Luke 9, verse 23, Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Now, daily taking up your cross does not sound like a bed of roses. In fact, a bed of roses doesn't sound like a very comfortable bed, does it? It's thorns. And taking up your cross, that sounds painful. But that's what Jesus said it's like following him. And this subverts our natural expectation of life with God. We don't naturally think that a path of suffering will be a path of glory and godlikeness. That's why when Jesus told his disciples he would suffer and die at the hands of the chief priests, Peter said, no way, not you. This will not happen to you. A righteous man won't suffer like that. Must have sounded a lot like Job's not-so-good friends at that moment. And... 
And yet you see Jesus pointed out in Matthew 16, 23 that Peter was not setting his mind on the things of God, but the things of man. And so by denying suffering could have any part in God's plans, he was revealing earthly thoughts, not heavenly thoughts. In fact, he was playing the part of Satan because it was Satan who in the desert suggested to Jesus that he could have glory without going through suffering. I think we, we often think that life with God surely means the end of all suffering. We naturally, like Peter, think in that regard. It's what Luther called the theology of glory rather than the theology of the cross. But friends, it is not so. Peter clearly learned his lesson. In 1 Peter 4.12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings so that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And James, Jesus' brother, knew the certainty of suffering too, which is why in James 1 verse 2, a verse that Gus has quoted many times, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So Paul knew suffering was not a cause to doubt God's faithfulness. Indeed, when suffering came, he understood it as Jesus being true to his word. In a sense, it demonstrates God's faithfulness. In this world, you will have trouble. For Paul, that trouble looked like floggings and shipwrecks and imprisonments and ruined reputations and beatings and loneliness and a a constant thorn in the flesh, which we don't really know what it was, but it sounded pretty unpleasant, a reminder of his weakness. And so it's little surprise that in Acts 14.22, Paul says, through many tribulations must we enter the kingdom of God. No good news. N.T. Wright puts it like this. Just as the Messiah was to be known by the path of suffering he freely, freely chose and is recognizing his resurrection body by the marks of the nails, so his people are to be recognized by the sufferings they endure. Paul could rejoice in suffering because it it wasn't unexpected. But also he could rejoice in it because he knew it wasn't wasted. And it wasn't evidence of the distance of God. Quite the opposite. Even in his suffering, he understood it was working for his good, drawing him closer to Jesus and others too. As can yours. Verse 24 He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, what's Paul saying here? Context is everything in a verse like this. The whole thrust of this letter is that Jesus changes everything, full stop. Paul's purpose in writing to the Colossians is to state, Nothing needs adding to what Jesus has accomplished for you on your behalf. If you have Jesus, you have everything. You don't need higher spiritual experiences, which was the problem in the church in in Colossae. There is no deficiency in Jesus' suffering on our behalf. At the cross, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. That's 1 Peter 3.18. And when his suffering was complete, Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. The work is done. Nobody suffers for the removal of sin other than Jesus. 
which is why there is no purgatory, there is no penance, it is finished. But you see how when Paul talks about what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, he immediately talks about the church as Jesus' body. Earlier in Colossians 1.18, Jesus is called the head of the body, the church. Now, as believers, we are so closely united to Jesus by faith that it's as if we're his very body. And Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 12 that when one part of the body suffers, all suffer. And so in a very real sense, Jesus shares the suffering of every believer. He suffers with us. Having suffered for us to bring us to God, he now suffers with us in that he he feels our afflictions. Paul, of all people, knew this. Before his conversion, he was hunting down Christians and causing them all sorts of suffering. And then on the road to Damascus, when he met the risen Christ, Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting my followers over there. Why are you persecuting me? Jesus feels our pains and our sorrows and our sufferings. Far from being unmoved by them, he is altogether with us in them, feeling them with us. In this way, the gospel advances through suffering. Somehow there's a communion with Jesus in the place of suffering. Paul talks about sharing in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings in Philippians 3.10. Because somehow in our suffering, there's a closeness to be found in him, more of him to know, more of his his promises to treasure, his goodness. It's not that suffering's pleasant, it is not pleasant, okay? And it's not necessarily that you feel this tremendous sense of the presence of God. Sometimes it feels like, why have you hidden your face from me? And the Bible demonstrates that in the Psalms. But it's that as everything strips back, his promises become so dear. Promises like Isaiah 42, when the Lord says to his people, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame will not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Notice he doesn't say, you won't have stormy waters or fiery trials. Neither does he say, you know, it'll happen, but you'll just be on top of the world. No, he says, through the stormy waters and the fiery trial, I will be with you. And somehow you'll know me more through it. And so we come to experience what the psalmist says in Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire apart from you. For, for, for Paul, the gospel advanced in him through suffering. He shared the fellowship of Christ in that place. And the gospel also advanced through him to others through suffering. Now for Paul, this was very definitely in the context of Christian ministry. In verses 25 to 26, he describes the calling he's received from God to serve the church by preaching the word of God to reveal the glorious mystery. What glorious mystery? That Jesus is Lord the Son of God, and he's been given freely to us for the forgiveness of sins to restore right relationship between us and God by his death and resurrection. That's the mystery. It's glorious. And ministry often does involve suffering. It is hard work. There is much joy, 
there is great cost. I think Adrian's story last week was one example of that. You know, it's hard. And it's important we hear that so that we honor those who are leading us. But I don't want to zoom in on ministry now because there is a principle here certainly for all of us. Again, N.T. Wright explains, this quote will come up on the screen. He says, we would be wrong to think of suffering only in terms of the direct outward persecution that professing Christians sometimes undergo because of their faith. All Christians will suffer for their faith one way or another. If not outwardly, then inwardly. Through the long, slow battle with temptation or sickness, the agonizing anxieties of Christian responsibility for a family or a church, the constant doubts and uncertainties which accompany the obedience of faith, taken up as they are within the call to follow Christ. All these properly understood are things to rejoice in because they are signs that the present age is passing away, that the people of Jesus the Messiah are the children of the new age. You know, our sufferings bring us low. They strip us back and show us our deepest needs. Our sufferings make us realize that everything we have is so fragile. You know, it humbles you to the ground when you go from being high-flying doctor to burnt-out ball in the corner. It strips us back. And in that place of pain, we find Jesus to be our healer. In that place of hunger, we find him to be the bread of life. In distress, we find him to be the good shepherd. In sorrow, he's our comforter. In lostness, he's the savior who seeks and saves that which is lost. The gospel becomes more precious to us when we pass through suffering. And we're able to say, everything is rubbish compared to knowing him. He's promised he'll never leave us. He's promised he'll never forsake us. Sometimes we can ask, has God forgotten us? The answer is no, never. Never will he forget you. On the cross, Jesus experienced God's forsakenness. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he took the full weight of our curse upon himself so that you will never be forsaken by him. Never. No matter how hard it gets, how tough it feels, how dark it will be, you can know he will walk through you through the valley of the shadow of death. And his goodness and his kindness will follow you all the days of your life. And you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And the promise is for all who will come to him. This is true for you, whatever your current suffering. For some of us, it's physical. For some, social. For some, mental. And I just want to address that for just a little moment here. You know, mental illness can be such a painful and lonely place, often poorly understood and poorly addressed. But one of the greatest preachers ever, really, was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Uh, he was a very fruitful minister in London in the 19th century. He wrestled with depression on and off throughout his life, in a crippling way at times. A godly man, not far from God, close to God, struggles with depression. He said this, the mind can descend far lower than the body, for in it there are bottomless pits. The flesh can bear only a certain number of wounds and no more, but the soul can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. Uh, depression is real suffering. The reality of depression and maladies of the mind are very well attested to in scriptures. I don't know why... 21st century Christianity has such a problem with it. You know, look at the Psalms. So many of them are written from that place of real darkness. If that's your story, 
we want you to know that this is a safe church for you to be in. Your pain is deep and God's love is deeper. And so you can come and when the music starts, you don't have to feel a certain way. You don't have to drum up some kind of spirituality at that moment. You can just come as you are, knowing that Jesus understands. The man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, gives himself to you. For me, my own sufferings have been largely centered in battles for the mind. I have a tendency towards rumination. And at certain moments in my life, that has gone into overdrive and caused me real difficulties. That was kind of behind my burnout experience when I was in palliative medicine. I was chewing over, did I do the right thing here? Did I dot all the I's, cross all the T's? And, uh, and so I, you know, for, for a period of five weeks, I had to just take time out to get this straight. And the reality is I still carry the fragility of that. Still do. You know, there are times when my mind can just go off on one, and particularly attacking something to do with my identity. And my mood can be affected by it. And at times I cry out like David in Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, must I wrestle with my thoughts and have sorrow in my heart? It is not like that all the time. It's like that some of the time. It comes. And it's a frequent battle. And yet I can, honestly, I can honestly say that as a result of those battles, Jesus is more dear to me. Through them, the truth becomes clearer and the treasure of knowing him becomes more precious than ever. The, the gospel advances in me through my mental suffering. John Stott says, though, that those Christians who have known much suffering often have a fragrance about them, a sweetness, an ability to love that's linked uniquely to their suffering. I know that it's also true that my suffering has advanced the gospel through me to others, um, enabling me to connect with people within the church, but also to advance kind of things around well-being in the NHS. The gospel advances through suffering. So Paul would have us boast in our weaknesses, as he explains in 2 Corinthians 12, for our weaknesses show that God's power is perfect through us. And actually, as we boast about our weaknesses, people realize, oh, you're just like me. We're both actually just really very needy with a God who's a great giver. Suddenly, the gospel gets spread out to everyone. You don't have to be a certain personality type. There's nothing that you... You, you struggle with it means that you're not invited in. No, you're welcoming. Do you have need? Great, that's his specialty. He meets us in our need. Christians are just jars of clay that, clay that, that break and clunk and don't look that impressive, but inside there's Christ in you, the hope of glory, which sustains us when suffering. So in verse 27... Paul talks about the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is our hope, and by his spirit, he lives in us. Now, those of us who have received him, that is, we've placed our trust in him, that is, we've seen him, and in our hearts said a yes to him. We've seen him, and we've wanted him. That's faith. Well, the spirit lives within us. We're living temples, God on the inside. And the Spirit always, the Spirit always works. His primary work is always to reveal to us Jesus so we might see him in his glory and hope in him and trust in him. 
Now, after suffering on the cross, Jesus rose from the dead and declared to his followers, peace be with you. No one had understood that Jesus would have to suffer and die and then rise again. No one had understood that. He'd explained it to his disciples several times and they just didn't get it. And so when Jesus was bodily raised from the dead, they could hardly believe it because of their joy. It says that in Luke 24, 41. But it's true, he, he's risen through death and out the other side. The firstborn from the dead, as Paul puts it in Colossians earlier. And with the resurrection... New creation has begun here and now. Jesus, the life giver. He's the word of the Father who goes forth creating light and life. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the resurrection and the life. He's died our death to give us his life. He's taken our curse to give us his blessing. And so 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus is the first of a harvest of resurrection that's to come. What has happened to him will happen to those who belong to him. Resurrection is your future in a renewed heaven and earth. This is the hope of glory to which you're called. Christ lives in us so that we can have certain hope even in the face of suffering. Glory is to come. The glory of seeing him face to face, of being with him, of heaven and earth coming together, even as heaven and earth met in the person of Jesus, fully God, fully man. Revelation 21 describes that Jesus will return and wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no death, no mourning, no pain, no crying, because the dwelling place of God will be with man. That will be heaven indeed, to to be with God. This is eternal life, said Jesus, that you may know the one true God in Jesus Christ whom he's sent. So we live now in that hope and treasure Christ with us, Christ in us, who has overcome the world. So just as a brief note then, where does this leave praying for healing here and now? The Bible is really clear. We should pray for the sick. We should pray for the sick and expect to see healings. And actually, our testimony as a church is we have seen healings. It's great to have the Dixons with us today. And there are testimonies of God miraculously bringing breakthrough and healing. And the reason why we love to see healings is that miraculous healing are a sign of what's to come. They're a sign that points to the new creation. They're a sign that points to Jesus, the life giver, the healer, the savior. But our hope is not in healing. Our hope is in Jesus. People who get healed get sick again eventually. Our hope is not that this current experience of life goes on forever. No, our hope is resurrection. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Only Jesus has been raised from the dead. Only Jesus has gone through death and out the other side. But all who trust in him will join him because we're his body. He's the head. Where the head goes, the body follows. So let's not misplace our hope. Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Okay? Don't place all your hope in this world. In this world, you'll have trouble. Place all your hope in Jesus. He's overcome the world. 
and in him we will know glory. And so, how do we help each other live in this way? Well, verse 28 tells us we proclaim Christ to each other, we teach Christ to one another, we warn one another if we're slipping away from him, come back, there's no hope outside of Christ. If today you're not a believer, if today you're someone who has not said, yep, I, I received Jesus for myself, then I, I warn you there's no hope outside of him, but that he is freely given to you today, that you might just say, yeah, I want him. Well, if you want him, have him, he's yours. And then together, we allow God to continue to work within us so that we can struggle and toil with all his energy, with all the energy of the resurrection promise, with all the energy of Christ in us, the hope of glory, we toil for our marriages. We don't give up on them. We toil for our kids. We don't give up on them. We toil in our work that we might see something of the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We toil in our ministry. We toil in our communities. When we're suffering, there's a sense in which it feels like toil. But Christ in you, the hope of glory, will work all his energy to keep you going. He's faithful to keep you faithful. So we celebrate him. Okay? Why don't we stand? I'm going to pray for us. Maybe you want to close your eyes. Just recognize that for some of us, this will really be resonating at the moment. And I don't know everyone's situation, but I know Jesus does. And that he loves you and that he cares for you. And it might be that there's some of us that just need to come forward for some prayer afterwards. And there's going to be a number of us around here at the front. We'd love to pray with you. Just where you are, why don't you just just settle, settle your mind before God. Jesus wants to speak to you today and to say to you, I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. He wants to say to you, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm with you. Let, allow my rod and staff to comfort you. I'm the good shepherd. He wants to say to you, my goodness and loving kindness will follow you. Just trust me. Don't have to do anything. Don't have to drum up a feeling. Just trust me. He wants to remind you of the hope of resurrection. Holy Spirit, thank you that when the word of God is preached, you go forth to create faith and hope and love. And so, Spirit, would you come now, I pray. I pray, Spirit of God, would you help us to see Jesus more clearly that we might treasure him. I pray that you would work healing in the lives of those suffering. We do pray for that, Lord, because we want to point to what's to come, the hope that's found in you. But I know that for many, Jesus, suffering will be an ongoing reality. And I pray that you would draw close to them in that place, that they might testify to fellowship with Christ even in suffering pray for my brothers and sisters. Lord, bless them. May they know the love of God poured into their hearts by the Spirit. And Lord God, I pray that you'd keep us. And we want to be a community that love one another and that help each other to keep trusting you. 
Lord, come. Come to hurting brothers and sisters and encourage them. Thank you, Jesus. You are not a burden. You are a balm. Your, your yoke is easy. Your burden is light. You don't place burdens on us. You carry us. I pray that my dear brother and sister would know themselves being carried by you now. In Jesus' name, amen.